Hello and welcome to Monday Morning's Useful Idiots Call-In. Uh, very excited to have you all. This is, of course, the call-in show that we do right after our Monday mornings on YouTube. And we respond to the Sunday morning news shows that we watch that you don't have to. Um, you can, of course, subscribe to us. Find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash Useful Idiots. Uh, and also you can subscribe to us and support our show at... Um, youtube.com sorry at at usefulidiots.substack.com so usefulidiots.substack.com make sure you subscribe to us on youtube find us wherever you find your podcast and subscribe to us on on substack hello aaron how are you hey great to uh hear you katie i just yeah. uh yeah yeah everyone share this we i just tweeted it out so make sure you share this so that people know what we're doing and can join the discussion um and also, uh, I'm Aaron. I'm Katie Alper. This is Aaron Mate, and I want to wish Aaron Mate a uh, happy birthday. It was his birthday on Sunday, so just wishing you a happy birthday right now. Katie, really, honestly, it's it's above and beyond. Above and beyond. You're like it's a it's a bit much. As like, a, I mean, it's multi platforms, YouTube, multiple yeah. call-in shows, your show. Yes. Uh, in person, because we had we had yeah. dinner. On, I mean, this is just on Friday. This I'm is, deeply yeah. touched. I'm deeply yes. touched. I just I don't. You can't expect me to meet this level of birthday uh, greetings when, it, when it's your birthday because it's no. just you know you're 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 too good a friend. Yeah, and that's July 11th, everyone. Just to put it out there, 7-Eleven, hard to forget. Um, should we start the call in? Should we just bring in our, our callers? And, let's and, start the call in. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Free Assange. I'm saying that, and I'm also calling on the person whose name is that. Hi, Free Assange. Welcome. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I, how are y'all? Happy belated birthday. Um, Thank you. I know, I know you're sick and tired of hearing it, but, uh, sorry, I just had to say it. Um, I just have a question or concern that I'm, I'm kind of like looking into the, into the future, I guess. And I'm really concerned about the rise of the far right parties, especially in Europe. Um, I think with all the, like, there's no secret Western Europe is very racist, and for the longest time, you know, whiteness wasn't really a concept. It was, you know, Irish, Italian, Slavs. And I'm really scared that there's going to be a, like, even more rise in the far right nationalist parties in Europe after all these Ukrainian refugees come. And I was wondering if y'all could comment or express concerns how to combat that. Um, am I just. Am I completely out of, like, am I incorrect on that? Or I think that's a very fair concern. I don't know too much about European politics, but yeah, this is totally a gift to the far right, this whole war. That's who's being emboldened in Ukraine. And uh, I think it's very reasonable to expect that to redound to the rest of Europe. Um, and it's very scary. Yeah, I think that that I that I co-signed that, and of course we're seeing, um, as we've talked about a lot with the Azov Battalion, and we're seeing the types of some of the types of people who are joining from abroad, um, and we're going to see more of this, I think. Yeah, and that leads me up to a next really quick, sorry, question. I don't want to monopolize. Um, at what point do we think that this is going to turn? 
Ukraine into uh, like a European health hellscape in terms of just all types of fighters and mercenaries, like mercenary infighting. And I don't, I don't want to compare it to any countries, but you, you know, um, countries that NATO and U.S. have heavily played roles in basically destroying. At what point do we think they're, we're going to reach a point of no return? Well, the same people who did that to Syria and Libya are now in charge of U.S. policy in Ukraine. So if their record is any guide, that is what will happen unless the war can end. There are people in Washington who want to basically use Ukrainians as cannon fodder to wage a a proxy war against Russia, to bleed Russia in the same way that the U.S. bled the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. And so if there is an insurgency, if, if this goes on for if Russia occupies Ukraine, then that's that is it's very reasonable to believe that that will happen. It's it's a very scary prospect, and um, the people in government right now have a lot of experience doing that. Syria was just insane, where there's all these different rival militias who sometimes cooperated, sometimes fought against each other, and is the people who suffered, the people who were caught in the middle, who 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 suffered the most, and. There's a similar overlap in terms of extremism where the most battle-hardened or battle-ready forces inside Ukraine do come from the far right. That's that's who's been used in the war in the Donbass for the last eight years. And similar to Syria, the worst and most brutal and most powerful fighters were the hardcore Islamist militias, including al-Qaeda. So it's um, the prospect of that for Ukraine is very real, uh, of Ukraine's own version of that is very real. And that's why the war has to come to an end. Thank you so Thanks. Thank you. And Hi, good morning, Aaron and Katie. Uh, Aaron, just a quick comment. I, um, I have a question and then a comment. Um, uh, I thought it was really classy last night that you ended your call-in after Serge spoke. Uh, I, uh, I was too, too away from it. I was really actually going to hang up because there was no way I was going to. Um, talk after that. So I applaud your, your ending on after his, his convert, your conversation with him. Um, my, Can my you question just, is, uh, one of you just in a 10 seconds, explain uh, for people who weren't there, what you're referring to. I'll do it. In, I'll do it in two seconds. He's from Ukraine. He was calling from Ukraine. Okay. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, Aaron, I think it's great. You 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 said you were probably you were going to keep in touch with him. So uh, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one that would like any follow up that you hear with him. If you could tell us, <laughs> great. Absolutely, um, I totally will. I totally yeah. will. Great. Um, so I just wanted to relate real quickly. Um, I was so furious last week that my uh, when I saw that the Congress had passed that I think it was 13 billion in aid for Ukraine. I think it was last Tuesday or, or Monday or Tuesday. And I was so furious, I left a fuming um, voicemails for all my Congress people. One of them actually left me a message. And the gist of the message is that, I mean, despite Biden saying that they're not going to engage Russia, he's saying that we, the gist of it is that we have to, we have to help Ukraine with arms and things because otherwise they'll come over here. We have to, it was the, we have to fight them over there argument. Um, And then he's the, the most interesting, there was a couple other things. I, I did tell him I don't want us arming Nazis. Um, 
but he ignored all that. But the one thing I think got his attention and why he called me back is that I told him I am done with Democrats and I'm not going to vote Democrat anymore. And so his response to that was that um, Republicans start wars, Demo- and he made it sound like we, the Democrats accidentally have to deal with this crisis in Ukraine. And, um, and according to poll numbers, it doesn't seem like people are buying this need to go to war. So I just wanted to see if you had a feel for that from looking at poll numbers or anything. If people actually are not buying this whole propaganda campaign. I haven't looked too deep at the polls yet, but I suspect that to the extent there's anti-war sentiment, it will even grow once people start feeling the cost even more on top of higher gas prices. Food prices might increase because of cutting off Russia from um, from cutting off Russian exports. And uh, the argument that the White House is trying, this is Putin's price hike and everything is about Vladimir Putin, I just don't think it will fly. I think it will fly with the, with the Democrats' base who have been primed to blame everything on Russia for the last you know, six years. But will that extend to independent voters when, you know, I remember during the impeachment when Trump was impeached for pausing military weapon sales to Ukraine and simultaneously asking Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden. Trump ended that impeachment with the highest approval ratings of his presidency. So this obsession the Democrats have with Russia and blaming everything on Putin just doesn't land with people. Understandably, because people don't care about a proxy war in Ukraine. They care about issues that impact that impact their lives. And Democrats just don't talk about that. They do everything they can to avoid that and talk about Russia. So I wouldn't be surprised if opposition to this whole thing grows. But, you, you know, you also never know. And we do have a very powerful propaganda system that's working very, very hard right now to manufacture consent for the uh, U.S. policy up to date. Okay, great. Well, thank you both. I, we appreciate uh, appreciate all the work you do. Thank you. Thanks, Anne. Yeah. Okay, Sam. Hi, Sam. Unmute, please. There you go. Great. Uh, it's great to hear you guys. Always love the, the shows. Sorry you always have to put yourself through torture watching those Sunday talk shows. Thank you. We appreciate Thank you. it. Yeah. You know, if you have to take Prozac or whatever type of medicine for that and no one would fault you for that type of stuff, that's just morbidly depressing. Um, well, there are studies right now showing that maybe Chuck Todd's voice might be biologically equivalent to Prozac. Yeah. <laughs> so really, soothing, yeah. that's, that's all the medication we need. Yeah, I think uh, it was Kyle Kalinske called the best. The, he's the equivalent of uh, human oatmeal, essentially, it's <laughs> as bland funny. as you can get. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, but um, I wanted to see. Like at first, I, I thought it would be. I personally got a kick out of when the U.S. sent a delegation to Venezuela, and then suddenly the media goes from the evil Maduro dictator to oh, the president of Venezuela has said. I was just laughing. I don't know if you guys got a kick out of that from how the media immediately shift the narrative from Guaido is the representative and so-and-so. Now it's like the president Maduro and so on. I was like, that's, that's just comedy for me. Well, as Chuck Todd explained to us, you got to have, what was it? 
in the battle of good versus evil, you got to have some ambiguity when (laughs) you're basically good. Anyway, I got to queued up, Katie. I got to queued up. Let's hear the Chuck story one more time. Let's hear it. (laughs) Can't get enough of it. Oh, I bet. Yeah. When it's good versus evil, you got to sometimes, when you're on the good side, have some ambiguity about discerning the real evil from the somewhat evil. Oh my god! Yeah. So yeah, no, I love it. Maduro has gone from like the you know uh, evil dictator to President Maduro again, and Juan Guaido has gone from President Guaido to getting a phone call from the U.S. being like, "Oh yeah, by the way, we're in your country meeting with your president, the guy who we were trying to overthrow to put you in. He's the president again. Sorry, our bad. Our bad. Sorry, Juan." Yeah. You got to feel bad for the guy. He's just going to disappear into ambiguity. But uh, you got to wonder to what extent are they are they relieving the sanctions? I mean, I'm personally thinking like if I was Venezuela, it'd be like, can I get our our own gold back that the UK seemed to have just hijacked? But um, they reportedly asked for that. But a major problem is going to be Congress, like these regime change fanatics in Congress who had a meltdown at even the mere act of talking to Maduro. So they're going to be a problem for the Biden administration to overcome, assuming it wants to actually uh, make some kind of arrangement with them as well. It's going to be an issue. Well, you know, they do hold the cards. But the one thing just as, uh, you know, having, being being Arab and having so many relatives who, you know, give their own opinion. I personally found it strange that Saudi Arabia and the UAE can dodge the U.S. call. Because as much as I despise Trump, the one thing I did love was he would say the quiet part out loud when he would say, you know, hey, King, you know, if it's not for us in two weeks, your government would have been overthrown. So I'm kind of like, how do you dodge the U.S. call when you have to rely on the U.S. for your own, you know, security? Because the second we pull out any troops, it may be overrun in a minute. I mean, or do you think it's just more of a show type thing? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess they feel cocky that the U.S. is not going to quit them, especially now that they're cutting off Russian energy, that that means that Saudi Arabia is needed even more. So they have leverage to even ignore Biden's phone calls. I mean, sure, but I could just, you know, if I was Biden, I'd counter that with, okay, I guess we'll start pulling troops out and see how long you last. But, you know, that's just me. But um, anyway, I'll end up on a quick thing. I remember telling you last week how I saw a few articles that were saying you had fighters from Syria going to Russia, and then suddenly the Guardian, the Associated Press, BBC is now saying that Russia is recruiting Syrian uh, uh, military. I was like, you know, they don't even have the manpower in Syria. I don't know how you think they're going to suddenly fly all the way to Ukraine or how that's feasible. But like you, I'm like yeah. just reading it with a giant grain of salt. But anyway, yeah. I want to thank you guys and uh, best of luck to you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Sam. You know, I'm skeptical of the claims going both ways. It's also been alleged that Al Qaeda in Idlib has sent over fighters to Ukraine. I just, I'm equally skeptical of that too. It just doesn't make sense to me. Well, how would they land? That's my question. Like, what are they going to do? Go through Poland? I mean, Turkey was able to pull it off with Libya and and uh, Armenia because you know they had Azerbaijan to go through, or Libya right. just because they were allied with that government. But I'm like, listen, the idea that, like if you land in Poland that the Polish you know mil- uh, border police are going to be like, yeah, green light, go right ahead. I mean, they'd be more terrified of anything else. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, they could definitely go from Turkey because Turkey is right because Turkey is basically incorporated Idlib. But then from there, how do they actually get into Ukraine? That's a great question. Exactly. Yeah. Well, right, well maybe Amy Klobuchar, maybe Amy Klobuchar can weigh in on that. <laughs> yeah. All, All right, right thanks, Sam. Thank Take you. Care. Tom.
Hi, Tom. You were just unmuted. Can you? Okay, there you are. Hi, Tom. All right, um, Aaron. I want to. Uh, I want to give you credit. Uh, you're the only person I've heard uh, commenting on this uh, invasion who has pointed out that this action is fully consistent with the rules-based international order created by the U.S. and NATO over the last 30 years. Uh, basically, might makes right. Right. Now, at the same time that you're making that wise observation, you're pointing out that technically it's against international law, which I think we can all agree on. But then the, then the thing that I'm really curious about is you, is you keep saying that Putin had other options. And I'm wondering what other options he had after eight years of banging his head against the wall and getting no response. I think many things. Uh, make another proposal for peacekeeping troops to go into the Donbass to act as a buffer between the uh, Donbass rebels and the Ukrainian military. Could have gone to the UN with all sorts of proposals like that. Uh, maybe even give a speech directly aimed at the U.S. people, saying this this is the predicament that I'm in with this proxy war where thousands of people, Russian speakers, are being killed in Ukraine, and I'm under heavy pressure to intervene. I don't want to, but I you know, so I, I need the American people to support peace there and pressure their government to get behind peace because that's who's blocking it. Uh, and also take NATO off the table for Ukraine because, and these are the reasons why. I mean, I, I just like, I, the idea that he had no other recourse but to invade, I just, I can't buy that. You invade when you're, you know, um, when there's a threat of an imminent attack, right? That's, that's when you're allowed to use force. And I just don't, I haven't seen the evidence for that. Russia has claimed that Ukraine was planning some huge military operation uh, in the Donbass, but I don't, I haven't seen the evidence for it. So in the absence of evidence, I just can't, it's just hard for me to believe that Putin had exhausted all of his options. Right. Well, you also keep pointing out that uh, Mearsheimer and, and Kennan and all these people for, for a long time have been saying that if there's no uh, softening on the position by the West, that this is inevitable. And yeah. if it's inevitable, it seems to me that that means there were no other options. I mean, to get a, a peacekeeping force from the U.N., wouldn't the Security Council have to order that? And wouldn't the U.S. veto it? Well, let them veto you know? it then. Let them do it. At least then if the U.S. does veto it, then that's a good argument that you have no other options. But if you don't pursue that, then you're not exhausting all options. You're not. And just because it's inevitable doesn't mean that there's no other options, because that could be their judgment of Vladimir Putin's mentality. But maybe a different Russian leader could have tried other other methods of recourse rather than just launching this invasion. Like I, I don't want to minimize the position that Russia was in. I get it. There was this war that they didn't start in the Donbass. Thousands of people being killed who speak Russian, with family in Russia. They're ethnically Russian. A lot of pressure on the Russian government to do something. But that doesn't, to me, justify launching a war in which you kill many people, create 2 million refugees, destroy large parts of your neighborly, you know, brotherly, sisterly country, and uh, also really wreck your economy um, and bring deprivation on your own people. You know, it, it's not, you're not just, 
you're not just entitled to respond because you have legitimate grievances. You're also still responsible for the consequences of your actions. And I just think the Russian government really miscalculated here. I think they thought this would be an easy fight and that there wouldn't be the kind of resistance that they faced and that they could get it done quickly without facing any serious damage. But that's just not what happened. I, I think they I think they gave neocons in Washington a huge gift. And I wouldn't be surprised that this outcome is exactly what people like Victoria Nuland have been hoping for and trying to provoke for many years. And I just think it was uh, not just illegal to do it, but strategically from like Russia's point of view, a, a huge, um, a huge own goal that will do damage to them. Now I, I could be wrong. I mean, maybe Russia can weather this, maybe they had no other choice, but it just sitting from here where I sit, it doesn't seem like that to me. Well, it, from my perspective, if if this standing up to the West and NATO and the U.S. causes the U.S. to stop going around the world starting wars, mm-hmm. uh, I think we all benefit. And mm-hmm. I, I agree. We're not going to know what the ultimate result's going to be for anybody's economy or, or whatever. But if it ultimately ends in less war, I think we all benefit. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe you'll prove to be correct. And uh, maybe Ukraine will have to be sacrificed for that outcome, just as the U.S. has been trying to sacrifice Ukraine for its hegemonic interests. Perhaps the result will be that Ukraine gets sacrificed for the, you know, a more peaceful world overall. I personally doubt that, but we'll see. You know, there's only so much we can speculate from here. The other thing is maybe Russia can show uh, the U.S. and the world how to do uh a military action that doesn't result in phosphorus bombs raining down on a city like Fallujah, you know, with total, total, complete devastation of places. You know, if, if they can pull that off, that would be even better because then, you know. Yeah, look, certainly this is not Iraq. This is not the Iraq war, but it's still horrible. You know, the, the Iraq war for, for, for brutality is, is, uh, it, you know, in this century is is unparalleled, but still, it's still pretty bad. What's happening in Ukraine? Right, war as hell. We know that. Yeah, it is. Tom, thank you for the call. Thank you. Hey guys. Um, so my question was basically the same as Tom's, but if I could just reword it, maybe. Um, yeah, I just wanted your analysis, I guess, on the alternative approach, but if I could reward it, right? Or from my perspective, it was a kind of a last straw or final straw straw moment because the the lying from the 90s and continuous expansion and placing of these um, weapons in these NATO countries. And, you know, this was a last minute um, call on Putin's part. And, um, you know, this all, we're all here because, I guess the West never really listened to Russia's con- concerns. Um, even even the 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 theatrical thing they put up at UN, not listening to Sergei Lavrov's um, speech or assessment of the situation or something. And I, I guess my question is: Let's say it didn't. Uh, Russia did not invade um, Ukraine or did not proceed with this operation. What would be the alternative to 
to want to stand up for the for this bully, the West or NATO or the U.S., you know, what would be the good way to approach this? Because, you know, they've for decades, they've continuously been just just against um, Russia just for the sake of it. Um, so what is, what is serious? Yeah. Well, here's that. another option. So if you, here's another option. If you really feel like you have to use military force to protect the people in the Donbass, why not just invade the Donbass and establish a buffer zone around there? Right. Yeah. That, that go, was, yeah, I was going to add that too. Why go to the rest of the country? You know, why yeah. go to Kharkiv and uh, which is a, you know, Russian speaking city historically? and destroying parts of it it just doesn't that part doesn't make any sense to me maybe one day we'll get some explanation that i've missed out on right now i you know so much happens that we don't know but it just i just don't understand why russia felt that to protect the donbass and to achieve its other goals of the you know uh that it had to go to the rest of the country and, and cause so much Destruction. Now, of course, you know, this isn't just about the Donbass war. So you can argue that the reason why they went to other places is because Ukraine's been um, co-opted by a uh, by far right forces. It does have a neo-Nazi battalion inside its inside its armed forces. And so there is a legitimate threat to Russia from the Nazi element of the Ukrainian military. But uh, does that, again, justify invading the country and bombing so many different places. I don't think it does. And in terms of how to address Russia's concerns about NATO, look, France and Germany were not on board with the U.S. agenda of, you know, promoting NATO expansion to, to Ukraine. France and they Germany... They were really against it? Like, they weren't very they vocal were, in their... Were, yeah, were they, they, like, they, were, okay. they weren't vocally... Like, yeah, they weren't, like, aggressively against it. And certainly... Um, Angela Merkel, I think, did a better job of resisting the U.S. on this than the current German chancellor, who strikes me as pretty weak. So but they but they weren't going up. But, but at least in France and Germany, Russia had some had countries that were like not on fully on board with the right. agenda. And so that could have been, you know, like whatever you want to call it, exploited, finessed to Russia's advantage to make sure that they acted as a bulwark against this NATO drive. So it's like. There was not to me. There was nothing imminent that just worked that that just justified a military invasion, which is such a huge step. Not, yeah. I just don't see that. But again, um, yeah, I could, yeah. Sorry, uh, logically, it would make sense to you know uh, kind of free or protect the Donbass region. And if, unfortunately, it seems like this was like more of a symbolic, uh, you know, using using uh, you know Ukraine to stand up to the West, which is very you know unfortunate. It's it's really bad and you know, we, we all do condemn it. And I, yeah, yeah, I guess, I, I guess what you said is, is uh, like mentioning NATO. I think some sort of solution to that is making NATO more democratic because, um, you know, like U.S. has the, the biggest voice in it because of the military and stuff. Um, yeah, I, I think they should just be more vocal, like not just like Ben bend the not just be uh going along with um what the u.s says but yeah that's a that was a good um yep um so thank you for that yep well thank you thanks for the call rena uh good morning katie and aaron um i'm glad a previous caller expressed concern over your mental well-being 
from having to watch these Sunday morning shows. I do hope you're indulging in a lot of self-care. I used to, I, I gave up watching these things a long, long, long time ago. There, there used to be um, a guy with HuffPost who did like a live blog of them. And he actually did that for a couple of years. And I think it totally, <laughs> totally messed with him for a while. He, he kind of, he kind of went down in flames. Uh, so anyway, t take care of yourselves for, for, from doing this. Uh, I just wanted to mention uh, another YouTube channel where you two are frequently um, highlighted. It's, it's uh, called Spar and Brawl. And I would recommend it to uh, everyone. Uh, it's two guys talking. Uh, they're not Americans. And they have a very interesting worldview. And they're also probably better informed about American everything than a lot of people in America are. And uh, you both feature prominently, either from... Uh, useful idiots uh, or your own shows katie and 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 aaron and uh aaron especially you frequently are are highlighted on a portion of the show that's called progressive tweets especially when you and anna kasparian get into it so um i would recommend that to for everybody's edification um they certainly deserve more subscribers than they have and again, thanks to you both. Thank you. Thanks for the recommendation. And if people and the kind words. during the Monday morning stream, but we have a Substack only uh, uh, segment from this week where we uh, where Aaron responds to the latest uh, Young Turks uh, Twitter drama. So you can find that at a, at youthplaydates.substack.com. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not even the latest anymore because they've since attacked me again. Oh, <laughs> but but, right. uh, well, but I'm, I'm just ignoring I'm just ignoring that one because I can't. It's it's too much of a time waste to respond to everything they hurl my way. So we'll have to make do with the second most recent yeah. stupid attack on me. All right, John, you are in the room. Hey, happy birthday, Aaron. Uh, yeah, and this is just a real lighthearted comment. I wanted to say you had previously played around with a theme song for your calling. And so I thought uh, a lot of people don't know that song. I, I never heard it, but a lot of people might know the uh, Erica Badu song called Tyrone. And the chorus sounds like this. It sounds like the name of your show. You know, you could have the, the call it. Yeah. Anyways, that's, that's a great I'm... idea. That's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, and it's a much better song than the one that I was singing so thank you thanks for that. all right have a good one thanks thank you i like your i like your uh, your uh your avatar too i can't believe it's not buddha that's really funny all right michael you're up hi Aaron. uh happy uh birthday by the way thank you and thanks for all you're doing by the way like with your your videos of like i think it was maria salazar just kind of uh exposing like what like a shallow neocon she is i think you're doing really great work by the Thanks, way but that wasn't me that was max blumenthal who did that oh i'm sorry but you guys work for the same the gray the yeah. yeah 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 so i guess you know the, the comment i wanted to make is well first i'd like to just well i guess i don't know like would would you agree i mean you did quote the hillary clinton emails where she said 
I think it was ISIS or ISIL is on our side. Al Qaeda, yeah. Yeah. Would you agree, though, that it's like that these uh, so-called, quote unquote, neo-Nazis in uh, Ukraine are sort of in on the U.S. side in the same way that like Al Qaeda in Iraq was, for example, like because to me personally, that is the far more damning uh, condemnation of them, that they are U.S. puppets. You know, to me, that's more damning than calling them neo-Nazis or Islamic terrorists. Because, I mean, from my perspective, America is like the new evil empire. It is the great Satan. So, I don't know. I mean, would, would you agree that these rebel groups, the right sector, the Azov Battalion, that they're they're just the Ukrainian equivalent of, like, Al-Qaeda in Iraq? Yeah, I mean, it's not a perfect analog. There are some differences. But, yeah, in the, in, in the sense of, does the U.S. use extremist forces to advance its hegemonic goals. Absolutely. They did it in the Soviet Union with the Mujahideen, which became Al-Qaeda. They did it in Syria with both Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all these other jihadi militias. Uh, Jake Sullivan wrote to Hillary Clinton, Al-Qaeda is on our side. John Kerry said that the U.S. was watching as ISIS was approaching on Damascus and that the Obama administration's strategy was that ISIS was such a threat and ISIS was growing so much, and the U.S. was letting them grow, not bombing them, letting them grow and threaten Damascus, that that would basically force Assad into a position to negotiate his way out of power and let a U.S. puppet take over. So essentially, Kerry was saying that the U.S. was leveraging ISIS to pursue regime change in Syria. So that's the U.S. strategy. And um, same thing with Ukraine, where immediately after the war broke out in the Donbass in 2014, it was the Azov Battalion that was sent to, you know, bomb Ukrainian civilians inside the Donbass, which they're still doing today. Uh, they were among the first groups to receive U.S. training back in 2014, 2015. So it's, you know, this is the playbook. Absolutely. So, I mean, in, in that case, then, I mean, I guess from my perspective, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to condemn them as like neo-Nazis and get in this argument over who's the real Nazi, Putin or right sector or as all battalion, I mean, it's like, it's, I mean, it, it doesn't matter at the end of the day, they're just the tip of the spear for American foreign policy. Right. I mean, and I mean, well, but, I, but both I things know. can be true, but both things can be true. They, they, the Azov battalion are neo-Nazis. They are. They well, are. What, what, is, a, what is, what is morally more repugnant being a neo-Nazi or being a I don't know why American you, hegemony? You, you, you call in my show yesterday and asked this question. I don't I'm really, sorry. No, 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 it's fine. I'm not telling you to, but I was struck then too. Like, I don't really get why you have to do the either or and why you have to have this. Uh, they're both. Why not? Why not describe yeah. them as both? How much you want to bet in like 10 years from now, the U.S. is going to have to do an intervention in Ukraine to take out the neo-Nazis, right? Just like we went back into Afghanistan to go after um, the Taliban, and we went into Syria to take down, uh, it, well, in part, we went into to Syria to take down ISIS when it got too out of control. So, you know, do we really want to establish this kind of meme in society that, like, these are neo-Nazis, neo-Nazis? Because to me, that's just going to be down the road 10 years from now, justification oh, for the U.S. concerning. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, look, yeah, I, you know, I can't think that far ahead and, and at that level of... And they are. Large, I mean, just if they're neo-Nazis, then they are. And uh, 
but they should be called that. Now, you know, I, I do think that uh, average Ukrainian. But you realize that that's like calling someone a terrorist, though. Calling someone a neo-Nazi is calling like calling them a terrorist, which means no, it's a, if they're a neo-Nazi, they have no rights. They have no rights, and it's okay to go in there and blow them up if we want. No, to. well, no, I, I'm not saying they have no rights. I'm saying that they're neo-Nazis. Uh, and that's, yeah. that that informs their thinking, and that informs why they're so keen to kill Russians because they hate Russians. Yeah, that's why I subscribe. And, and it's look, either it's accurate or it's not, and I think it is accurate. So I'm not going to shy away from saying it. I was going to say that it does mean though that average Ukrainians are unfairly smeared as neo Nazis, and that's not fair because the Azov Battalion and, and the forces they represent are a very small percentage of the country, but. They are a force there, and they've been increasingly empowered since 2014 with the U.S. back coup. And I'm not going to shy away from. from yeah. Out. Okay. Why? I mean, the fo- we also can be focusing on n- not uh, support, like not escalating things by pointing out that they're neo Nazis, right? Because you're you're putting this in the, in the you're saying that we shouldn't call them neo Nazis now. Because later on, that could be used well, to justify. I, I thought Putin was the Nazi. I mean, again, it's just to to the normie American, all they hear is just Putin's yeah, but, a Nazi. No, right, I got it. Right. Yeah. But that's in the case of in the case of the Azov Battalion, they actually are. Yeah, they actually are neo Nazis, and it's just you know, uh, uh, we shouldn't shy away from from calling it what it is. And you know, just to inter- on, in terms of escalating, I, I'll just quote Marvin Gaye: "Father, <laughs> father, we don't need to escalate. War is not the answer." Because only love can conquer hate. And uh, I agree. All right. let's hope you, that we don't uh, yeah. let's hope we follow Marvin's counsel. Thank you, Michael. The rest of the media is instead citing let's get it on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> okay, so many. All right. Masha. Hi, good morning. Yeah. Good morning. So I I watched your Monday morning uh, live stream on YouTube and like, oh my God, I just like the, the surreality just seems to like pick up, you know, from um, week to week here. Um, just like a couple of comments on the footage that you showed that Lindsey Graham said we cannot give half the Ukraine to the Russians. Like that points to a more than a client state relationship, right? Yeah. Like that's like we own it. Mm-hmm. And so we can't give it which was like a kind of mind blowing thing. And like you pointed out, Aaron, that, that uh, these senators are in this war zone, like amping up these uh, irregular like fighters or whatever is, is also fairly um, surreal, like to, to most of the world. Uh, And I just, uh, and then that poor, that poor child that like came there from the U.S. and like, you know, left his wife and two-year-old and all I could think was like, yeah, toddlers are a lot sometimes. (laughs) I kind of get that he might want to like leave that behind for a minute, but holy shit, like I don't know if I'd go to a war zone to do it. And that's kind of just the state of mind I'm in is that like through the looking glass surreality is like, you know, um, so I want to make two ridiculous propositions, like uh, to continue a more lighthearted kind of vein. So there's a, there's this um, idea that I encountered on uh, the Russians with Attitude podcast about the, the way that the uh, kind of like sanctions, like there's no McDonald's anymore in, in Russia. There's no Coca-Cola. There's no uh, Pornhub or OnlyFans, no crypto, no, you know. Uh, augmented reality, none of that. So, so are we making like a Russian, like a generation of like Russian Ubermensch? <laughs> like these, these kids are going to grow up like actually interacting with reality and, uh, and like getting strong and stuff like that. 
Uh-oh, kind of backfire. <laughs> right? I wonder about that. And the second ridiculous proposition is that the uh, the war will be over by May 9th for, like, Victory Day for the, you know, Immortal Legion to to be able to march through the streets of Moscow. So they, they're going to need their, their tanks and soldiers and stuff back. So that's, those are my two, like, things couldn't be more ridiculous. So there you go. I'm adding to the ridiculous. Well, uh, thanks for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have to laugh instead of cry or laugh and cry. Yes. Pretty much. Pretty much. And there's a saying like the Slav culture is strong with that whole idea of like, you never know. Uh, and this is a literal translation. So, but like, you never know what evil is for evil. Like sometimes uh, you don't know what, what like worse luck, bad luck is saving you from that whole thing. Like this fatalist kind of like everything is shit, but it's, it might, they might've been worse shit for us if we didn't get into this kind of shit. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Sounds like, you know, who would love that? Mm -hmm. Chuck Todd. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's completely unsensible. yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Marsha. Bye. Not unsensible. I was just thinking it's, you know, he loves he loves wrestling with philosophy. <laughs> but evil, yeah. Yes, he does. Yeah. All right. Sasha. From Masha to Sasha. From Masha to Sasha. Hey. Hey, guys. Hi, hi. hi. Um, and uh, good morning to you. Good, good afternoon from the European continent, uh, the, the place of non-censorship and freedom. Um, but um, so, so yeah, obviously being ironic there. Um, uh, so, where, so where I just you? wanted to uh, in in Sweden, Sweden oh, at the moment. Thanks. But I, I I'm 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 actually um, born in in Yugoslavia, so that's a it's a non-existent country. So I, I I feel very much for people what's happening in Ukraine on many levels, and I think I I understand um, uh, I can uh, understand what 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 many of them are going through, and. Um, I just wanted to add something because I'm following the media on different uh, different languages, different different continents, different countries. So um, one of the military reasons, and and I'm against, I'm with you guys on on non non war, um, anti war. Uh, but from what I've heard from some military um, guys uh, from the Russian side, obviously, um, is that that the reason of not taking just Donbas was that that Ukrainian army amassed such a troops um, in the area. So even if they managed to push them out. This conflict would keep on going on with the shelling as it was going on until until now. So mm. I'm not saying that this is justifying the invasion. I'm just saying this is the military reason what they've said of why doing more than just uh, a Donbass. I got you. Okay. Yeah. And, and okay, so, fair so in, in addition to that, in addition to that, um, I, I'd like just to to ask you. Uh, maybe you guys have a bit more of information of that. On that, um, there has been. A killing and kidnapping and disappearance of Russian-speaking activists in the east, in the southeast of the country. So all the regions where Yanukovych was winning uh, prior to 2014, uh, people over there have been suppressed and 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 you know killed, eliminated. So there is, from what I've heard, it's in thousands. But I mm. just wanted to ask you. Do you know something about this? I mean, from what we know in the West is is very hard to to pick up. Like, for example, today there was another shelling in Donbass. There's another 30 civilians killed. And yeah. that's unworthy victims, unfortunately. And, and we don't know about them. Um, so so it's, it's very hard to get the right information. So I know that there are still a couple of key Russian-speaking players that... The, the, that probably uh, Moscow is counting on as a post 
um, uh, as a, some post-conflict solution. Uh, but I'm just curious if you know anything about the numbers of the, the Russian-speaking activists and politicians they've been killed or, 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 or um, you know, disappeared. I don't, but I've heard of that before. I just don't have, I haven't looked into it. There are some, there's some documentary films that have been made by French and I believe uh, German documentary crews, maybe, maybe other countries in the Donbass that look, that look at issues like that. I, which I haven't had the time to watch yet, but they're out there on YouTube that I want to see. But uh, I have, I have heard that. I've also heard that, you know, life in these, separatist republics under the you know rebel authorities was not pleasant that the the rebels that their rule also was uh you know um brutal and 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 repressive too although that's also something i've not looked into so but certainly the um it's absolutely clear that the far right in 2014 essentially chose to go to war with the, with the Russian speakers in the East because they hate them. They don't want them in their country. Like they don't feel as if Russian speakers belong in Ukraine. They, I think one of their slogans was uh, like Russians belong in Russia or something like that or something similar. So right. there's no doubt that there's been some, a lot of anti-Russian discrimination and violence that's been going on for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And then this, this, this fits into the, 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 the white supremacy uh, of the most of this uh, um, extreme right in, in in Ukraine, which see the you know this old Germanic Russophobia in the in the nineteenth century Europe, where the, the the Slavs are seen as subhumans and they should you know uh, therefore uh, be be uh, exterminated. Um, uh, but um, yeah, so so I just wanted to uh, to to add another thing. There is this. Uh, I think in the West they are calling it the Russians kind of in one of these cities. Uh, they've been they've been kind of cleaned up or how you want to call it um, um, they, 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 brought, they kidnapped their um, uh, the mayor and they brought in on the, the Russian speaking mayor which I think what is missing there is a context that in many places like that um, um, uh, this, this right extreme right wing uh, politicians or, or people close to them were put in place in very undemocratic way and that was okay in the West, you know. And now, when 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 you know when when somebody is bringing back the people that maybe are even getting more popular vote or support, um, that's that's called a hijack or or or, or differently. So it's, it just shows a, a double standards. And 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 to close off on here, as somebody who worked in in post conflict, I can only say that the peace is not it's unattainable. It's not going to work unless both sides really want this to work, really want peace to work. They start from taking responsibility for what was done, all the, the, the bad things that were done in their name, and they're willing to negotiate and talk about the future. And I don't see that happening in Ukraine, sadly. Um, yeah. Not from the Ukrainians. Uh, the, the Ukrainian speaking, I'm not sure what the, how, how far are the, the Russian speaking trusting now uh, the, the, their, their, their compatriots. But I don't see that even from the NATO. You know, they don't want, they just want to keep on escalating and, and keep on yeah. yep. digging this deeper and deeper. Yeah. Yeah. Sasha, thanks for the call. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Cheers. guys. Bye-bye. Yeah. Oh, Reverend. Welcome back. Hey, thank you. How are you? Good morning. Uh, you, you've covered most of the, most of the questions have already been covered. I mean, I'm just wondering if, I mean, I keep going back to November 39. You know, the Russians move into Finland. They get mauled. They bring all their forces to bear. They're victorious. I mean, 
I'm wondering if they do that here, God forbid, and they turn Ukraine into a client state. I mean, the cynicism to me seems like, oh, there's money to be made. We had war in Vietnam, and now they're a trading partner. And there have been other scenarios like this. I mean, could that be the other outcome? Or what would that look like? Horrible as it is, people just kind of go, eh, you know, we tried. And we have a habit of intervening, causing havoc, and then we get amnesia, and then we just sort of go on. But your, your thoughts would be much better. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, that's... Salt river? Yes. That's totally a, a plausible scenario. It's... War is awful and leads to all kinds of horrible things. And you're right. We just do not learn the lessons of the past. You know, I, that's just what it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I hate to think that, but yeah. I mean, I keep seeing that in the back of my head, but anyhow, love the show. Uh, Katie, pet Bodie for me. And thanks a lot. I'll go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Vlad. Vlad. Uh, there we go. Hold on. Glad you're there. Hold on, let me just... Okay, Vlad, you should be the next caller now. Hi, Vlad. Hello? Hi. Hi, guys, and thank you for doing this. Um, So I've just been seeing a lot of this out there. Uh, Not everyone, of course, but would you guys be able to comment on... Uh, the danger and kind of the erosion for chance of demo- or real diplomacy um, that comes from painting Putin as mentally unstable and uh, also underestimating the Russian military. Sorry, say it one more time. I missed the question. The danger. Oh, yeah. Repeat it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I've just been seeing this a lot. Um, I just wanted to kind of get a comment from you guys on the, both the danger and also the erosion of a chance for real diplomacy uh, that comes from painting Putin as mentally unstable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also uh, underestimating the Russian military. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, again, up until Russia invaded, there were serious proposals to resolve this issue and centered on neutrality for Ukraine. And because the U.S. refuses to entertain that, out of, I think, this totally reckless devotion to this principle of not letting Russia decide who can join NATO or not, even though Ukraine's prospect of joining NATO is is not realizable anytime soon, that that was rejected. And so to cover up for that fact, that that then uh, incentivizes the U.S. to paint Putin as just crazy and thus can't be negotiated with. So I I think it's totally fair to, to... say that this effort to paint Putin as crazy uh, is, is a deliberate attempt to undermine the prospect of negotiating with him and reaching the diplomatic solutions that are right there on the table and that everyone knows are going to happen eventually anyway. So, yeah, I think calling him crazy totally plays into that. It doesn't mean he's not, uh, you know, um, he's not uh, blind and he's not um, myopic. I think he is. and I think personally he made a huge miscalculation and I wouldn't be surprised if that reflects the insular nature of, of his little inner circle, but still yeah. per, per, portraying him as like deranged or a new Hitler is that incentivizes not negotiating with him. And so that's, it's fair to speculate that that's actually the aim of this kind of talk. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and just, you know, in order to really come to that uh, diplomatic resolution that we all want to see, it just seems important uh, that we need to treat Russia as, as, you know, being logical in this conflict. And e even if there were underestimations from their side, um, you know, and then also uh, just kind of a quick question, like, you know, do you guys think that the West should recognize Russian security concerns as legitimate? Well, of course, and that's that's not like a. I mean, now that's kind of a fringe position, but forever that was coming from the mainstream. People like George Kennan and Robert McNamara were advocating for years that Russia does have legitimate security concerns, and it's just suicidal for everybody to try to expand a hostile military alliance to Russia's borders. While also, and this doesn't get talked about enough, but for the last twenty years, since two thousand three. While also expanding NATO, the U.S. has been on this quest to destroy all the arms control treaties that limited the weapon stockpiles of, of both the U.S. and Russia. So you're simultaneously expanding a hostile military alliance to Russia's border, which thus creates new markets for U.S. arms uh, manufacturers, while also killing the arms control treaties that limit those weapons. So it's just like to argue that Russia doesn't have legitimate security concerns about being surrounded by a hostile military alliance that is being increasingly enabled to build up its weapon stockpiles that were previously limited. It's just it's completely insane to ignore that. And um, that doesn't mean. mean uh, justifying Russia's invasion, but to to ignore Russia's security concerns is just, it's so reckless. And I, but that's what you have to do to be accepted in the U S mainstream discourses. You completely ignore all of that. And by the way, you know, um, on your point about Russia being respected, literally the head of German Navy had to resign in January when he said, among a few things that he said, Russia is not going to give back Crimea. And he also said that Russia asked all asked, all Russia is asking for is some respect and he said, quite frankly, they deserve respect. And after he said that, Germany was, you know, so ashamed of such a irresponsible, honest comment that he had to resign. So that's that's yeah. where we're at. That a, a a German naval chief chief has to resign for the infraction of saying that Russia deserves respect. That's no, where exactly. our political culture is at. Exactly, and I think we really need to just get, you know, on that right kind of rhetoric about the whole scenario where both sides respect each other because you know when you come to uh diplomacy you're always trying to build those bridges of understanding so that's right that's and right the thing of, of Putin being the new hitler so scary and disturbing yeah and historical yeah absolutely all right thank you guys thank, thank you, Vlad. you bye fariha hi Hello, good morning, guys. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, so my question, um, I mean, my, I wanted to ask the questions that uh, that have been very well asked earlier in this program, which was what were the options that Putin had if if it was not going to be war for him, then what, what could he have done? And you've answered them very well. But I also have, I've, I'm also wondering if you can help um, me understand the, you know, during the Trump years, uh, David Duke was sort of extolling the connection between Trump and Russia and saying, you know, that Russia is this last white nation on earth and, and you know, the last hope for the 
for the white people uh, on on the in the in the world and so um there you know there are many many liberals who are also who can also come back with with the contention that Russia in itself is a very racist nation so um, you, you know your um, so, or you know, somebody somebody saying that the U.S. is supporting the Azov Battalion, which is which is a far right um, a group, doesn't really hold water because because the Russians themselves are very very racist people, and there's this whole connection thing that was that was sort of explored in in some detail in in the in the legacy media uh, during during the Trump years of this connection of of, of David Duke praising. Russia and holding it up as a as a beacon for the white white people. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I know David Duke and other racists have said that, but look, historically, Russia is the country as a Soviet Union that defeated the Nazis, and that's a huge part of their national identity. They take a lot of pride mm-hmm. in that. So mm-hmm. this claim that Russia is somehow uh, in cahoots with the far right white supremacists. It's just, it's antithetical to everything they actually stand for. I mean, I've never been to Russia and I'm not a Russia expert. I don't pay much attention to what goes on inside Russia. So, Mm -hmm. you know, certainly there are, there are far right movements there, but look, there actually recently was a report put up by the U S intelligence community. I'll try Mm -hmm. to find it. And it basically was looking at Russia's ties to the far right around the world. And they found nothing basically. They found they basically found nothing, um, and uh, this goes against the dominant line that we've heard that somehow um, you know Russia is like the the like main backer of the far right around the world. It, it just it just there's no evidence for it. I'll I'll quote you what the report says. Let me just pull it up. Uh, we lack indications of Russian government direct support, such as financing, material support, training, or guidance to write. Uh, to, to right-wing movements outside of Russia. And uh, inside Russia, they also say that there's uh, there are some right-wing movements, but those don't have the support of the government. So this idea of, of Russia being down with white supremacy, I just, I don't, I don't think, I don't think there's evidence for it. Okay. That, that sounds very decisive. Is it possible that you could like link the, the reports at some, you know, on, on the gray will... zone? Yeah, I will, in the show notes to this episode, I will include the links for that. That would be most kind. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Thanks a lot, guys. Love you you both and love your work. Thank you. Much appreciated. Bye. Okay. uh, No. No thanks? Is that your name? Yes. Can you hear me? All right. Yeah, Yeah, so I've... I've just got kind of an observation, uh, say, over the last 20 years uh, since the Iraq war, um, well, the second Iraq war, uh, gas prices uh, really shot up. Um, Let's see. And then I remember, I don't know the exact timelines here, but I do remember at a point Saudi Arabia started to uh, really pump out a lot more oil. Gas prices dropped considerably. Um, The United States was producing quite a bit of oil. Uh, When the price of oil dropped, um, it was unaffordable for us to produce the amount of oil we were producing. So um, I don't know why Saudi Arabia did that. Uh, I kind of uh, have a question, if you have any thoughts on the idea that um, 
maybe this is a this is it seemed that we were that on the news they're just perpetuating this idea that uh, of sovereignty of uh, Ukraine which really kind of seems just like code to say no uh we're leaving the window open to go to NATO seemed provocative to me, to the Russians, which is kind of led, seems like it's led to this situation. Now they're telling us, well, we're going to have to pay the price at the pump. Uh, the price per barrel now. Oh, so I heard an interview uh, on NPR several years ago after the, after the oil production in the Middle East was uh, ramped up, how uh, a lot of the American uh, facilities had to stop production because we couldn't afford it. Well, I'm wondering if you think that this, uh, you know, stopping Nord Stream and really this provocation of war um, has something to do with, you know, permanent gas price, raising gas prices, considering there was also, I don't know, I can't remember, it's 500,000 square, I don't know if it's miles or whatever, but in the Gulf that, uh, that Biden just... Um, opened up for auction, I guess, to produce oil. Is this, do you have any thoughts on whether this is, that's what this is about, is just raising, permanently raising oil prices so that the United States can, so we can profit off our oil? Yeah, that's two 3D chess for me. Maybe you're right. I just don't, I can't, I don't know enough about oil policy issues to, to uh, judge. What I do know is that, you know, Ukraine has been used, as we talk about a lot, as cannon fodder in a proxy war against Russia. That's what's been going on for the last eight years. And uh, NATO, the interest of expanding NATO is very good for arms manufacturers because it creates endless weapons markets. And, you know, overall, Russia is a major deterrent to U.S. hegemony. So anything that can be done to bleed it, hurt its economy, is good for U.S. hegemony. So that's, that's how I look at it in terms of the guiding motives for the U.S. But, for you know, perhaps what you're saying there about oil being a factor is is uh is a factor too okay so then if i could just uh kind of on a little comedy note here uh there's if you don't mind really quickly there's the clip of marco rubio uh interviewing uh uh, victoria newland now if you'll notice on his follow-up clip he asks her about if there's uh weapons used if that would uh if that's if the anyway basically saying on her follow-up answer, she says, uh, yes, Senator, that would be classic. And then she farts just as she says Russian. She says classic Russian technique. Just want to put that out there. You might want to check it out. A little, little comedy. I thought that was hilarious. She leans a little too when she does it. Okay. okay. I Thanks a lot. Yeah. I didn't catch that when I watched it, so I can't vouch for the veracity of that. But uh, all, you know, uh, everyone's free to go check out the clip and see if, it's, uh, if that's there. Thank you for the call. <laughs> Oh, Aaron, before also something we said we would address is someone in the in the chat during the live stream set asked about how you what are you supposed to do with uh, Ukrainian self-determination? Well, if you care about Ukrainian self-determination, then why aren't we calling for the reinstatement of President Yanukovych, who was overthrown in a U.S. back coup in 2014 and had the new leadership picked by Victoria Nuland, as we know from that leaked phone call? So the it's like, look, I hear this often, like in, in, in response to, to me, people accuse me of denying Ukrainian agency. And it's a question of like, whose agency am I denying if I'm calling for the return of the elected president, who, by the way, even though he was deeply corrupt, Yanukovych was deeply corrupt. I write about this. Polls at the time still showed him to be the most popular politician inside Ukraine. 
And that's not necessarily a ringing endorsement for Yanukovych, but it's just a reflection of how deeply mistrustful people were of all their political leaders um, because there is so much corruption in Ukraine. And just the fact is, the guy was elected and he was overthrown in U.S. back coup. And that reflects that the fact that he was elected and the fact that the U.S. and their allies felt as if to oust him, they needed to go to the lengths of uh, backing a coup, speaks to the fact that Ukraine is deeply divided. And so I've never said that, uh, I've never said what direction I think Ukraine should go in because it's not my business. But what I have said is that in a deeply divided country where you have parts of the country that want to be a part of the West, want to be a part of Europe, they hate Russia. Uh, but another part of the country that speaks Russian is uh, is ethnically Russian, has family in Russia, and they want to have ties with Russia, then it's insane to try to force Ukraine into one camp or the other. And that has been the U.S. policy since 2014 and, prob- and, and longer, but it's ramped up since 2014 when the coup happened. And so the answer then is in a, a deeply divided country is to keep it neutral. And that's a, that's been on the table for a long time. And it's the U.S. that's refused to respect the agency of those inside Ukraine who don't want to be just in the U.S.-led orbit. They also want to keep their ties to Russia. And a key U.S. demand starting back with the 2014 crisis was that Ukraine basically cut their ties to Russia. And there's the people there who don't want to accept that. So that's what my stance is. And so I, I'm setting up for the best solution given the agency of all Ukrainians, not just the Ukrainians whose views happen to align with those of people in Washington. Great. Great, thank you. All right, Lisa. Good morning. Happy birthday, Aaron and Katie. It's always such a breath of fresh air to listen to you guys and your views. Um, I'm so grateful that the two of you do this regularly and that your views are so sensible and that you believe in diplomacy. Um, My concern is twofold. The first is regarding diplomacy. As as someone who is, uh, I'm a Gen Xer, but just barely, uh, I would have been a boomer if it would have been another couple months. And when I look back through history, my observation is that the U.S. has abandoned diplomacy in a respectful and from a position of being statesman because of this uh, economic incentive for war. And, you know, I, I... I'm going to dovetail into that with my question, which is, as I observe this, and I'm looking at it from many different viewpoints, um, you know, I, I agree with what Aaron just said about having to represent everyone in re- Ukraine and what is good for all of them or what is best for what all of them want, need in the ability to just live lives without being in war. Um But I'm also very concerned about what is coming up regarding agreements that are being made between China and Russia and India and Russia and Iran and Russia and potentially Venezuela and Russia. Because what I am seeing, and I would like your comments on this, is that if those quote unquote agreements become uh, economic agreements and, you know, potential alliances, 
the natural resources of those countries aligning leaves so much. It leaves the Americans out in the cold. It leaves Europe out in the cold. And it creates a situation that is very precarious. And I'd like some, some of your input, if you have any, on that aspect. So I'm not sure I fully follow uh, the, the the fact that Russia is deepening it has all these ties to other besieged countries could increase the prospects of um, just just could be more dangerous. I'm not sure I follow. Well, from an economic standpoint, there's a lot of oil in all of those countries that we're talking about. There's also a lot of natural resources yeah. and economic power. And one of the things that has been that has happened with Russia is that economically they were devastated. Yes. Okay. And the motivation for those alliances, uh, I can see where if those countries were to align, that economic power could have epic impacts on the global economy, on the U.S. currency, on uh, oil trade, all of that. And those agreements have of late been spoken upon in the media, not every, not, not the, the uh, MSM media, but the independent media has been talking about them. Economically, if those countries were to formally align mm-hmm. we knew we now have a shift in economic power yes that that is my major concern in all of this not to uh belittle anything that's going on in the ukraine i, mm-hmm. I you know but I, this is almost a uh, a flex of muscle in my opinion from what i'm seeing yeah well, that's what people speculate is that the uh, world order is realigning, that this is entering a new multipolar era where countries that have been bullied around by the U.S. get together and change the global. Aaron, are you there? Oh, he's got to come back because I would love to hear. Katie, I'm going to drop off in the hopes that he can come back. Okay, um, let me see. Aaron, are you there? I have tried Something to return. Happened. Can you hear me? Okay. You're here, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of speculation that... So I'm not sure where you lost me. Uh, you said some spec. There's speculation that... I think I was it. Yeah, you just started going into that these uh, countries are starting to realign because they... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and their thinking is that, like, as long as they're independent of U.S. hegemony, they're always going to be vulnerable to U.S. sanctions. I mean, that's plenty of countries can speak to that. And they're taking steps to basically uh, counter the dominance of the dollar, the U.S. dollar, and also just the U.S. dominance of the banking system, where if the U.S. decides that your government is no good, then they can just cut off your entire population from the banking system, as they're doing to – they've done to Syria – when I was in Syria, people people couldn't like people couldn't they couldn't get money from their families from abroad. They couldn't engage in transactions with, with the outside world because the government just cut, because the U.S. government just cut them off. And so countries like this are aligning to get around 
that system. But I, I think I don't think these things happen overnight, and um, they're complicated. That you know, it, it takes a long time, and no one quite has the power that the U.S. does. But so, in terms of what impact that will have on the global economy, I it's not my wheelhouse. I don't know, but um, I do think countries have the right to try to defend themselves and figure out new ways to basically sustain their economies because the U.S. makes that very impossible, like with Iran, um, Venezuela, everywhere. So all these countries have a sh- that are the target of U.S. economic warfare have a shared interest in overcoming it. And what the implications are for the economy, that's above my head. But, um, but isn't that a absolute testimony to the need for a diplomatic shift for the U.S. to start considering these things? We have to be a player in making things better for for all of these countries or we're going to find ourselves you know my fear is that we're going to find ourselves out in the cold of course but our leaders don't think that way they don't they don't think the way you do their only concern is getting elected and increasing profits and power for the people who run the world which is you know US corporations and their and their allies that's all they care about so that's why, you know, U.S. is like decisions that undermine global security are constantly being pursued if they empower or uh, enrich U.S. hegemony. That's why, for example, even though Al Qaeda attacked the U.S. on 9-11, the U.S. did nothing to go after Saudi Arabia, where most of the attackers came from. And then 10 years later in Syria, they empowered a uh, like a a rebellion, quote unquote, that was dominated by Al Qaeda and their allies. Because again, hegemony took priority o- over security, and that, of course, we should be engaging in diplomacy and working with everybody. But that's not that's not the guiding principle. The guiding principle is hegemony and war profit. Well, Godspeed, everybody, and thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for the call. And I believe I'm on the tail end of gener- of Generation X. I was born in 1979. So cool to have like a the, the, the full spectrum of, gener- of Generation X in that uh, conversation. Gen X needs to talk more. We really need to talk. I'm a millennial. I'll try to. I'll try to. Yes. Here, here. Let's hear more from the Gen Xers. All right. I think that's a good way to wrap. What do you think, Katie? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. And, um, Sorry we didn't get the chance to get everyone's questions, but we'll be here again next week. Yes. And Katie, you'll be back here with the Katie Helper Show on Colin this week, too? Uh, yeah, probably Sunday. Yeah, probably Sunday night. Def, uh, after my sh- I'm doing a show with um, Vijay Prashad on Sunday night. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And I'll be back with AM Live on Colin also on Sunday, but earlier than your show, around like uh, 5 or 6 o'clock Eastern time. Great. Okay. Yeah, we have to make sure we don't. We can't be divided. Too much division already. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Bye, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye, everyone. Have a great week. See ya. Bye.